Our new friend at the takeaway, Anita Coleman, doesn't hesitate when you ask her what described her best about six months ago. I was happy. Genuinely happy. You know, I, I guess I am always have a smile on my face. People can tell when something's wrong because there's no smile. And for a little while, but just for a little while, you would have known that Anita, grandma of three living in L.A., was going through a bit of a rough time last February. Stage two breast cancer. I had two types of tumors, one positive receptor, one negative. Last time, the first time, out of 16 lymph nodes, 14 of them were cancerous. This time, I believe out of 16 lymph nodes, only two of them were cancerous. Anita Coleman is our third voice in a series we began this week about three black women coping with breast cancer and dealing with the uneasy statistics that African-American women are significantly more vulnerable than white women to the disease. Under her skin, living with breast cancer is our way of getting beyond the numbers and letting real people tell their stories. Anita Coleman talked to us as a veteran of breast cancer. This is her second diagnosis. A good friend to have if you have questions about a disease that kills 40,000 women in the U.S. per year. Because of the aggressiveness of my first diagnosis, I had to go 10 years before I was in remission. In 2011, I made my 10 years, and I was like, okay. But they had always told me that it could be dormant. So uh, in February, when they told me that it was a possibility that it was cancer again, I was initially shocked, but then I just, you know, as they say, put on my big girl panties and say, okay, let's do what we have to do. How did it feel to be able to stop covering for your kids when you reached that 10-year point or, or, or you were able to tell them what had been going on and now you were able to say, well, maybe this chapter's closed? What, what was that like? Well, actually, when the 10 years was up and I told them, they said they knew more than I had told them. Because we don't realize how perceptive children are. But they were glad and they were to the point where, well, this is over. Mom's okay now. And the biggest blow was to my daughter when I told her that it was back because she's the youngest. So what happened in February of 2014? In uh, February 2014, I went for my annual mammogram and um, my primary care physician called me and he said, um, your mammogram looks suspicious. We want you to go to ultrasound. He said, it looks like, you know, you have cancer again. And I went for the ultrasound and they did see uh, two lumps. And my doctor wanted, he scheduled me for a uh, core guided biopsy. I went for that and his assistant called and said, the doctor wants to see you in his office. And I said, well, tell him if it's bad news, I read him tell me on the phone because I'm not driving uh, 40 minutes in traffic to hear bad news. I'd rather be close to my home. And the doctor, he said he really wanted to see me. He didn't want to tell me over the phone. But he went on and told me because I was persistent. And I was actually coming out of a store because we were preparing for the party that I was giving that's going to say either I didn't have cancer again or I did. And I pulled over to the side and he, he told me. And it was like, Okay, um, I was upset for a minute, but since I kind of knew it was coming, even though 99% of you says the test is going to be negative, but there's that 1% that said, just in case, you better get ready. And at that point, I knew I had to get ready. So I did some crying there, went home, did some more crying, uh, called a couple of my friends and family, let them do their crying. I said, okay, okay, that's enough. That's it. Let's move on with this. 
Is there any decision that you made the first time around that you wish you'd made now? Um, the first time around, I had asked them if I could have a double mastectomy. And they talked to me because at that time I was engaged. Um, and they said, I'm, you know, for relationships and for uh, appearance. Now at this age and what I'm thinking about appearance, which doesn't mean as much to me now as it did then. And don't get me wrong, I always keep myself up. But if I had have known then, I probably would have had the double mastectomy. But I can't, um, I can't just keep going back to what I should have done, what I should have done, because I could have had the double mastectomy and they still could have diagnosed me with another cancer. So I, I can't keep, I can't beat myself up about that. No, no, no. But you did that partly because of, uh, you know, the marriage that you were getting into, right? Yeah, the marriage that, I, you know, every woman wants to look equal. <laughs> they want to look right. Have you talked Have you talked to your ex-husband about this? No, that's my ex-fiance. We, um, he couldn't deal with the total strains of someone having cancer, so it didn't work. Really? Yeah. So he just said, see you later, bye. Yeah, kind of, pretty much. It got it got a little bit depressing while I was going through chemo and radiation, but I made it. I'm still here. And illness is hard to deal with because my experience with men, most of them can't deal with the cold too well. So, <laughs> 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 so and and what I have learned is everybody is different. Male and female alike. I have female friends who can't deal with the illness that well. They're really emotional. My illness actually got them more depressed than it got me. So um, what was it like to investigate your genetic history? Because you knew this had something maybe to do with a genetic past that as an adoptive child, you, you had to investigate like a detective. The first time... Since I was adopted, they asked me, did I want to get the paperwork that would help get my documents opened to find out about my biological mother's medical history? And I opted not to because being adopted and knowing the story of my adoption from what my uh, adoptive mom and what the paperwork has told me, my biological mother must have told some tales, lies, stories to her family because she was married and had two kids. So I don't know where she disappeared to while she had me. I don't know the history. But I chose not to disrupt the lives of people who had nothing to do with her lies. And my concern turned to my daughter and my future grandchildren at that point. The the second time around, I had to take the the genetic test. And so from that genetic test, since it says I am a carrier, my concern now is for my two children. My daughter has been tested, and my son has has got to be tested. And from there on, we move. So in our group of three African-American women who have been diagnosed, you're kind of the elder statesman here. (laughs) Because you've been around the track twice. I'm the veteran. I'm not the rookie. You're the you're the veteran, not the rookie. That's right. 
How do you feel about the statistics on um, uh, the outcomes for African-American women and uh, the, the, the really scary probabilities compared with other populations? When you're going through a health challenge like this, one of the key factors is to remain stress-free, um, to be in a safe environment, quiet environment, peaceful environment. And I have been fortunate that I, the first time I didn't have to work, the second time it was not my choice not to work because at the same time I was diagnosed the same day it was probable that I had cancer again. I was also told I was going to be laid off. But I looked at it as a blessing because I did have a stressful job. And God has made it possible. I'm I'm not uncomfortable. I have food. My rent is paid. I've been blessed in several instances. I don't have to worry about my medical bills because I had retired once. And so I have full medical coverage. And it's a bad thing that so many African-American women, they don't have the coverage that they need. And then some of them, I've met people. I know women who had cancer and chose not to have the treatment because they had to go to work to support their family. My whole thing is you don't have to have a lot of money to make it. There's a lot of people, a lot of groups out there that would help, but pride sometimes keep people from asking for help. Um, our exercise, our health, our eating habits, we, ha- we have to change those. And people don't like to change, but what I've realized, my eating habits now are different than they were in 2009 and I still try to keep up with I don't do as much exercise as I should do but a lot of people going through cancer don't realize they have to exercise we as a community sometimes don't have the resources available but even if you don't have the money there's still exercises you can do without the money I love to dance I have stairs leading up to my apartment so I have to take those more times a day than I would like to it's just that with the education about the disease and the education about the recovery process, we have to be more proactive. And that's where African women have not been active and proactive because they're so busy taking care of their families. A lot has to change. Wow. Well, a lot of, lot of wisdom there for our, for our rookies. Anita, thanks so much for giving us your time. Thank you, John. Anita Coleman, 54-year-old mother diagnosed with breast cancer in February of 2014. She successfully fought the disease once before in 2001. To hear an extended version of our conversation and to listen to her audio diary, visit us at thetakeaway.org slash series slash breast cancer. And we want to invite everyone to take part in this exploration of breast cancer, especially African-American women. What's it like to live with the disease? We've started a Facebook group. We'd love for you to join. Go to Facebook.com and type in Under Her Skin to find us. You can share your stories, post pictures, take part in our ongoing conversation about the trials and triumphs of living with breast cancer. Again, join our group by typing in the phrase Under Her Skin on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. I'm John Hockenberry. This is The Takeaway. I'm David Remnick, host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour. 
wherever you listen to podcasts.